Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. believe it's actually happening you can't really register and of course you've no idea what it means it's quite hard to diagnose if you're young in particular because people don't expect either a brain hemorrhage or a stroke if you're young even though my daughter has survived miraculously twice uh, without any major issues she does suffer from fatigue uh, and her life is forever changed. I'm sure it's the same for every single person who had, who's had a, a brain injury in the family. You know, it just is catastrophic. And we've channeled it into the charity, but we just thought, well, these terrible things have happened. She survived, and then we're learning about the lack of rehabilitation or recovery services after you've had any sort of brain injury. It's just extraordinary how this is not a priority brain injury just doesn't happen to the brain it happens to the whole person and that's something that's really we took as core to the charity hello and welcome to on a good day with me elizabeth callahan and me julia ajay this is a podcast which looks into brain injury and its impact on all involved Today, we're delighted to have on the show Jenny Clark, co-founder of the brain injury charity, Same You. It was founded by Jenny alongside her famous actress daughter, Emilia Clark, who played Daenerys Targaryen in the hugely successful series, Game of Thrones. But it was after filming the first season of Game of Thrones when Emilia had her first brain aneurysm, aged only 24. She went on to have another and needed life-saving brain surgery, which thankfully, was successful. In 2019, Amelia went public with her story, helping to inspire other brain injury survivors and formed the charity Same You alongside her mother. Jenny, a huge welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of On A Good Day. It's a pleasure. Lovely to meet you both. Oh, you too. Now, it was our husbands who had a brain injury and, you know, we, we're mothers ourselves. You were faced with your daughter having a life-threatening brain injury. I mean, I can only imagine how shocking that must have been for you when you got that phone call and and, and had to drop everything. What what was going through your mind at, at that moment? Well, it's always, it as mothers um, and partners, you it's a call you never, ever. You're always somehow in the back of your mind, you know, maybe one day it'll happen and you never, ever want it to or imagine it does. So I was working for Capgemini, a big um, management consulting company, and I was finishing an executive summary and the phone rang. And I always pick up when my daughter or my son phones. I'm sure we all do. So even though I was in a real sort of crisis situation, 
I said, oh, you know, I can't talk. Um, sorry, very busy, phone you back. And a guy said, uh, is that is that Jenny? Um, I'm your daughter's trainer at the gym and she's just collapsed. So that was how I heard of it. And I just knew it was something really serious. Um, I'd only seen her, you know, the day before. Um, and I called my husband and, he, and I said, get to the hospital in North London. So um, that was it. So we we got there and it was very, first of all, one of the issues, it's quite hard to diagnose if you're young in particular, mm. because people don't expect either a brain hemorrhage or a stroke if you're young. And there's a lot of um, misinformation, even in the uh, medical clinical professions about that. Um, and so it was hard to diagnose, um, but she was diagnosed and thankfully about 12 hours later, um, she had regained consciousness um, and she was um, shipped uh, blues and twos through London to the wonderful National Hospital uh, in Queen Square. Uh, and they did a, a coiling. And so that was the, that was the start of it already. So a hugely difficult situation to have to cope with and deal with. Um, and we know from our experience how the emotional toll that that can take you know, as a as a carer, as a mother, as a partner, um, what what did you do in those those moments when she was being blue lighted and probably people were saying to you, "Go home and get some rest," because I was with her. No, I was you in. You were a, with her then. Yeah, she looked like a little little to, to, tortilla wrap because she was all wrapped up really tight, and and my my husband was there, my my son was there, so we were all there. Thankfully, we were able to be. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's the, the thought of um, disbelief as the first thing, isn't it? You can't believe it's actually happening. You can't really register. And of course, you've no idea what it means no. um, because it's something that, you know, nobody really talks about. So mm. people don't discuss brain injury as something people do wonderfully talk about cancer, diabetes, all sorts of other um, illnesses that if you survive are, um, are, are really um, chronic conditions. Uh, and but nobody really talks about brain injury. So it was just a complete shock. We didn't know what. And because our brains are so complex, no one can really tell you until a little later, A, whether you're going to survive or your loved one's going to survive. Or secondly, what are the consequences of that brain injury and what you all have to adapt to to live uh, differently? Because even though my daughter you know, survived miraculously twice uh, without any major issues, um, she does suffer from fatigue uh, and her life is forever changed because, um, you know, you have a trauma of any sort in your brain, even if it's a concussion, um, it, it completely uh, alters your perception of, I suppose, of um, of life, of death, of vulnerability. So I think it's it's always life changing. And I don't think enough people really have got the empathy to understand that. Because because it probably you can't see a lot of the problems, and so when you look at somebody, you, you know you, you don't judge a book by its covers. So true. And I've certainly found it's been life changing for me as well. It's been life changing for Hector. It's been life changing for me, and I think I think our children as well, and you know the wider wider family. Have you found that too? Oh, uh, completely, um, absolutely. I think that um, we have, um, and we've channeled it into the charity. So that was our, you know, because we obviously wouldn't have started a charity if um, she hadn't got a public profile. 
but we just thought, well, these terrible things have happened. She survived. And then we learning about the statistics, learning about the lack of rehabilitation or recovery services after you've had any sort of brain injury, acquired brain injury is what we focus in. Uh, so that's something that happens to you after birth. So and and it's not degenerative. So it's anything in between. So that's traumatic brain injury or or a brain injury like a stroke. Um, so you you just um, you can't really comprehend what little funding and what little focus in any place in the world, whether it's you know it's the UK or elsewhere that we we work. It's just extraordinary how this is not a priority. Yeah, it, it's shocking, isn't it? So, uh, so, so the answer, yes, absolutely, and I'm sure it's the same for every single person who had who's had a, a brain injury in the family. You know, it just is catastrophic. Um, I mean, what I I found amazing is that she did manage to go back to work so quickly, and I mean, she must have been and have to keep it under or feel like she needed to keep it under wraps, and that must have had an impact with you as a family as well. And what how did you help her with their recovery and uh, during that time as well so i think the first time um she had she went back to work very quickly so and both times it happened in the break between filming each each year each season uh and so very very few people knew about it uh, at hbo um and and her friends and so what we, the way i was able to help her was when she was back on set being absolutely terrified that something would happen to her again. Because I think this is what also people find. If you if you, if you have anything wrong with you, you're scared that's gonna happen again, right? Everybody is. And I think with a brain injury, the scary thing is, well, it could happen any moment, any time. And even though she'd had her first aneurysm coiled and it was reasonably secure, you never quite know. And even if you um, are told by your doctors that it's totally fine, you know, it's just it's so unknown. It's just such a mystery, isn't it? And so the fear is is the, so difficult to, to handle. So I suppose my big support for her was just being there and reassuring her whenever she was feeling unwell on set or, you know, feeling like um, the things weren't going well and just saying, no, don't worry, it's not going to be it's not going to be your uh, brain hemorrhage again. It's great that you could have that you were able to be there with her. Oh, I wasn't. I wasn't there. I was just on the end of the phone. Okay. Okay. Day twenty four hours. I'm definitely. I think I get the badge for one of one of our uh, top helicopter mums, <laughs> which, which you guys are with your, your with your husbands. You have to do that, don't you? You want to do it. It's not ha- not a case of having to. Yes, that's right. And I think one of the things that we've covered in a previous podcast is that need to take care of yourself as a carer because. There's a little bit of a uh, 24 hour on call mentality, I think, isn't there? Uh, and in the same way as not knowing quite what's going to happen next for the person themselves, I think for us as well. And and both of us, our husbands have recently had spells in hospital too, out yeah. of the blue. So, um, you know, things things aren't necessarily a kind of linear pathway to knowing mm-hmm. knowing what's going to be predictable. There's always that element of unpredictability I think in the support that we need to give definitely no definitely and and I think that perhaps partners family members you know you take the brunt of it don't you because certainly I'd have conversations with Amelia now and I I mentioned something and you know she has no idea that happened obviously because she was so you know unconscious or 
you know, out of it with the with the medication. Um, thankfully, yes, and memory as yeah. as well. I know Hector doesn't have much memory of his time in hospital, where whereas I can remember remember it very clearly and mm. remember some of the people involved. And Jenny, moving on to same you, which is a marvelous charity, and and it will be great to explore some of the things mm. that that the charity is doing. Um, you are calling for uh, more support for nurses and nurse practitioners. And we had a fabulous nurse practitioner at Addenbrooke's. Um, Would you like to tell us about nurse practitioners and your experience as opposed to nurses? We had fantastic nurses as well. And I was so touched when one of the nurses that was caring after Hector when he was in um, neurocritical care, the neurocritical care unit was an older Zimbabwean woman who said, I will take care of him as if he were my son, which was just so powerful. Mm. Um, but a nurse practitioner plays a slightly different role from that. I think there's two sides to it. So first of all, generally with nurses or nursing staff, so I don't think it matters what type of nurse you are, but when you are in hospital, in acute, um, it's, it, you know, nurses are your lifeline. To, the, to to feel that you can get through the situation. That's in my personal experience. And I think, you know, I've lost, I lost my husband seven years ago. So um, I'm very aware of, 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 of that situation. And certainly with my daughter, uh, you know, what she really valued hugely was the continuity of nurses in the ward because she was, you know, weeks in hospital, obviously. Um, so the continuity of nurse care when uh, she left hospital, uh, the specialist nurse practitioner who was available um, really became um, uh, invaluable uh, and and was, again, another type of lifeline. And until quite recently, we used to talk to her um, a lot. We started the charity. She gave us some advice. Uh, we had meetings at Queen Square before we started. And Tina Stevens was, was the name of her nurse at Queen Square. And, and, you know, she's just a very, very important person in our lives. And so the idea that um, specialist nurse practitioners are not available in, in all of the 28 odd centres in the UK, at least, uh, to, to be able to be there to, to look after people and do the transition from acute into going back home or going back into or going into a rehab situation. I mean, we felt, feel very strongly that that's just not right at all. And really, I don't know about your experience, but there's not many nurses involved in rehab um, that we found. Um, and the people we talked to, the wonderful multidisciplinary teams in rehab, absolutely fabulous people, dedicated and do a huge amount. But I've always thought that it would be great to have a nurse in that mix. Um, and that sort of doesn't seem possible. But what we um, decided to do was to put some uh, investment because Amelia raised money when we started the charity and we wanted to support nurses and nurse practitioners and create um, some some extra training for them because um, we saw that there was very little rehabilitate neuro rehabilitation training. And so we work with the Royal College of Nursing uh, and their foundation and we work with uh, Edinburgh University and I can't praise Edinburgh highly enough fantastic people there amazing leadership and so we're in the second year or it's sort of two and a half years really of a training program that we funded and helped uh, helped 
uh, you know, sort of, um, I suppose, mentored it in, in a way um, to provide a, mo a postgrad module. So it's a PG certificate uh, that um, specialist nurses can uh, can apply for. Sadly, it's all online because this all happened. COVID, you know, we started the charity and then we had a few months and then COVID hit. So it changed every, it changed the trajectory of the charity. So that we were going to do blended learning, but we it is just online. Um, and so uh, it is a module for understanding the importance of nurses in research and how their firsthand experience of working with patients and their families is, has, has a huge impact on the, the future of rehabilitation. The second piece is, is the sort of technical side for physical rehabilitation uh, nursing. And very importantly, there's a third module, which is about mental health support for, for, that nurses can provide to uh to patients so that's still going um there's there, sadly we don't have enough funds to keep it going longer but it is available and um uh, trusts and uh, other organizations can talk to edinburgh and discuss if they want to uh, to see how they can port the training scheme into their own individual teams do you know what the uptake in that has been not very high because there wasn't really very much money to do it but the first one I think it was 25. Yeah. So the first, we had 25 nurses the first year. And I think there's 18 the second year. That's good. So a drop in the ocean, but it's, you know, it's a start. Absolutely. It's a start. And, you know, they can hopefully pass on their knowledge as well to the yeah. people that they're then training. And that's, you know, it's that duplication, isn't it? That is so important because it is really specific. It's really, you know, specialised really is, is dealing with someone. The way that you communicate with them has to yeah. completely change. You have to use your hands and, you know, it's complex. And which complex. A lot of people don't understand. Yeah. Well, I think it's also, you know, we all have got to, um, you know, know and understand the pressure the nurses are under. Because you know, the we uh, Edinburgh suggested that we changed the second um, year to be eighteen months because the nurses found that the pressure of doing a PG cert module on you know for the, their training was just too much you know because of COVID. So that was also something that you know that's obviously changed everybody's lives. For me, particularly, the support that we had from the wonderful nurse practitioner uh, Christine Harkin actually at Addenbrookes um, was being a point of contact too. Yes. When you're dealing with so many different people, teams, you know, medical, you know, and a hospital switchboard number and, you know, everything. Is... Oh, that's really important point, isn't it? Really important. I mean, there was a, something happened, I won't say what, in California when she was filming something else. Um, but very sh very shortly after the first um, aneurysm, and so, so something happened, and I immediately I was in England, and I was uh, able to talk to Tina and say, "This has happened. What do you think?" And and yes, and it was I was working in Poland, and it was the middle of the night, and and it was just really really helpful. And uh, you know, she was available, and she could you know in the morning you know give me a a, a call back, and uh, and and really reassured me that's all you need sometimes isn't it just assurance I mean we didn't have anything like that really we it, it was kind of you get so much information that you don't really take in because there's so many different therapists and, and people involved and then you know we did get a great discharge pack when we left hospital but 
other than that, it was, you know, it's quite overwhelming to to really pick through it all. And, you know, for, for the average person, that, that that's what they're kind of mm. having to deal with. And then it's like, okay, then I've got to deal with this on my own, essentially. Um, it is overwhelming. And there's just so much information. And I don't know, you you, you all know, um, you know, when there is a shock like this to the system, you don't really take it in at first, do you? So there's got to be, you know, kindness from from you know the medical staff, particularly nurses, to you know to to be able to repeat. And of course, they do, and they understand it so well um, because it just doesn't go in at the first. You know, the, the implications um, are, are are difficult to accept. Do you feel that you got enough support for you? in in those times and and afterwards as well because Julia and I have spoken about this is helping the carers or the caregivers however or supporters I kind of prefer supporters it's important for them to feel empowered and look after themselves and have people to speak to and have that support as well well I personally did um uh, and the the because I think why I felt I had was because I knew she was going to be okay. So when I knew she was going to be okay, then I was okay. And I thought, well, we everybody collectively, the family, we can cope with whatever happens next. Um, but I think that the people that I talked to who are perhaps um, partners of, of older people with stroke in particular, and then mothers and fathers of younger people, partners of younger people with a brain injury. I think that that is um, it, it is, is something that people say that they really don't have enough support. And I think that that's one of the things that we need to try and examine as a society. Because, of course, I don't know what you think about this, but, you know, the various people I've talked to when we first started the charity said, well, you're trying to talk about rehabilitation only, which is what we do. Um, and it, it's really not just it's not clinical, it's it's societal. So it's it's community based. And so it's the care sector. And so we we know that, you know, that there's just, you know, the budgets have been slashed. The community teams are very thin on the ground. Um and so I think that what we're talking about is a link between, so so it's chronic care. So where does that fit? And, you know, I think that one of the um, measures are, are, are patient outcomes. And I think there really isn't enough being done to have patient outcome measures for brain injury patients uh, accepted as important for the people in the acute sector who have saved the person's life. At the moment, you save somebody's life as a clinician, you're discharged and the, the person is discharged. And apart from you know, follow-ups where you know, it's not really about the rehabilitation, it's about checking that the problem isn't reappearing really. So when I have my MRI, when Amelia has her MRIs, it's just, okay, it, you know, it's it, it's secure. You're not going to have, you know, it's not going to burst again. Um, I think that there could be a shift in the responsibility of clinicians to understand the um, quality of life for people after their brain injury and have responsibility to be measured as part of the 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 uh, their own responsibility so you they save your life and then they need to they could take responsibility for how well you live that life afterwards 
So that social prescribing is is interesting, isn't it, in terms of that that pathway afterwards. But I I feel the same that the, the community support connections and integrating into a community plays a huge role in outcomes for the person with a brain injury yeah. and the whole family. And I think, you know, upskilling all of us Yes. To understand what that could, the definition of one's own community, how to access that, how to have the confidence to start something if something isn't there. Um, potentially, not everyone can do that, obviously. Um, and and also recognizing that some different levels of support are there for different people in terms yes. of family members, but also. For example, if the main wage earner is the person that's had a brain injury and then there's, I mean, recently I was hearing about someone who was losing their home because they were unable to keep up mortgage repayments. So it's, uh, you know, as we often discuss, it's different for everyone. Everyone's situation is different. But I think that that looking at the whole um, person as a community, part of a community, however that's defined, really is important for the out the six, most successful outcomes for people i think that you're completely right i agree with you what we have um we couldn't survive without wonderful volunteers because we're a, st- a very small charity and we don't want to become a big charity we don't want to to um have to raise money and then and, you know we really want to, to have as much impact as possible um so one of our wonderful volunteers in america um, a copywriter, a wonderful young woman. Um, she said, and I never ever forget it, she helped do our wonderful animation that we have that shows um, what happens uh, after a brain injury and you might have seen it. Yeah. And so um, and so Abby, she said, you know, said to me, you know, because brain injury just doesn't happen to the brain, it happens to the whole person. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's really, we took as core to the charity mm-hmm. because people just don't get that. And that, and and you know, the word holistic is used in different meanings and different ways, but it is the word to describe that when you've had something that happens in your brain, it obviously affects your your body, it affects your voice, it affects all these different things, cognition, um, fatigue, all all sorts of different things. But so, in, but it really affects your identity, and your identity, you know, is so closely associated with your with your brain. And, you know, and when you have a trauma, a brain trauma, you know, you do have to change the way you live your life. Uh, And so that obviously impacts your identity. And if your identity isn't supported and if it's a new identity, which is going to be, I think, and why we chose the name for the charity, even though something terrible has happened and maybe you can't communicate the way you used to be able to, people have really got to acknowledge you are the same person even though there might be personality changes, you are the same you as you always were. And so what we hope that people thinking why they called it same you is just to really try and heighten the empathy, the empathy for um, for what people are going through um, just by by communication. And, and you said earlier about communication, how vital communication is. I don't know about you, but I hate the word rehabilitation. I hate all the words around what we're all going through mm. because they just, they, they're so impersonal 
And, you know, until we can break through and actually make, and let's not, not mince our words, there is stigma for people with brain injury. And particularly if you're unfortunate enough and you physically look different because of your brain injury, well, that really is bad news for you because people don't give the empathy, the understanding, and I guess there's fear. Um, and so I think we've really all got to, to, to really, you know, try and raise the discussions about trying to see what needs to happen to help remove stigma after a brain injury. Yeah, absolutely. My husband does, you know, he looks completely normal physically, but he does struggle with his words sometimes. And you can just see that people don't give the space or the time for, for, for other people and just assuming they're all everyone's the same isn't it when we do have difficulties whether it's a brain injury whether it's it's anything we do need to grow more empathy and have more understanding and and patience and kindness and all those things um you mentioned the you know we've spoken a lot on our podcast about identity actually because it it does it it completely changes it changes the brain injury survivor but it does also um, affect the partner or the you know the mother and people around them as well dreaming of a better sleep tossing and turning is not your destiny and ollie is here to help ollie invites you to sink into sweet sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness more than just melatonin Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Now, the charity is starting to look more at mental health, isn't it? There's a bit more of an input going into that. Tell us a bit more about what you're aiming to do. So, we've got a very strong partnership with UCL, UCLH, because of Queen Square. And so we have not been able to find enough funding to do what we want to do to support UCL and their vision for really improving and innovating uh, brain recovery and brain health. Um, So I won't go into all of that because it's a a very long story, Um, but there's some fantastic people there, clinical researchers uh, and practitioners. So what we have got on the table but don't have the funding funding for is for them to create a mental health pathway for recovery for people after brain injury. And that would be the first step if we could afford to find the funding to do it. And the first step is to do the feasibility study, then for them to develop this pathway and then to start to pilot it uh, uh, in a UCL Queen Square. So that is really on hold because we just haven't got the funding, sadly. Um, But what we've been focused on instead is to try and increase the resources that we have can provide with people kindly giving uh, ideas and services and and support tools pro bono to to us that we can put on our site and socialise and see how it can help. And we also really strongly believe that um, we've got the start of a a much lower cost way of helping people. And that is working with a particular hospital in New York called Mount Sinai and creating um, a a, a program for um, families and society. So not clinicians, not people who are trained, but to be able to 
have a very simple level of certification and some training, online training, that people like me, you can go through uh, uh, to really help your loved one or your friend um, go through the, the steps to recovery from a mental health perspective. And obviously, everybody's individual, but uh, we feel that if we can get more people uh, trained to a certain level, then they can also um, escalate or be aware of some issues that need to be escalated to the medical teams. So um, that's that's one of the things that we are uh, starting to pilot, and hopefully we will have that for the second quarter next year. Amazing. I mean, what I've found is that it would be really good to get specialist like psychologists that that know about stroke that know about brain injury when I'm looking around for my other half you know you, you do kind of need that extra layer of somebody that gets it and so if we've got a report um and and that's we, you can get online it's just um so I think it's about 15 pages and so we we about two years ago we had uh, we we had a wonderful clinical neuropsychologist Catherine Dugan from Queen Square and St George's Hospital um, and she is, you know, like everyone, um, very special to be a clinical neuropsychologist. And so she uh, looked at uh, anonymized stories, a couple of thousand anonymized stories, just under, I think, 1600 she did. And so she pulled out the key indicators of problems that people had written to same you and talked about. And, and we've compiled it into a document um, that actually sort of says, OK, this is what most people go through. And obviously, it's a huge generalization, but I think it helps people because I don't know about you, but you, you know, you you, you don't have enough information. You look searching for information, and you just—it's so reassuring to know you're not alone, and that other people are having to go through the same thing. And it's not something that you know you can easily find. But so 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 clinical psychologists are you know you know really my heroes, um, and so um, I think that um, we've got to figure out ways of stretching the resources that are available so we've got the we've already talked about maybe how you can in, in train the public families to do some support but at the other end you've got technology and so one of the things that we're really proud of is our technology program which is a group tele rehab program which is called enroll um and it's real re, neuro rehabilitation online and so we've treated nearly, uh, well, we haven't personally, but we've enabled uh, through money that we raised and a, a, a wonderful national lottery grant. Uh, there's nearly a, about 800 people have been um, helped to do um, rehabilitation. And that covers the whole spectrum of rehabilitation um, and as much as possible, mental health and, and clinical psychology. How fabulous, Jenny, to have these resources available online. We'll put uh, links in the show notes as well to the charity, to Same You. And within that, you have information on the website, as I know, um, that can really help people. And there's a live questionnaire as well, isn't there, where you're asking both people who've had a brain injury and carers, family members to complete the questionnaire to help with building that resource training program exactly um and so enroll um is is currently only available in um lancashire 
Uh, Merseyside are taking it on. Uh, we're, we aren't able to fund that, but they're, they're doing it. And so one of the things that we hope that we can try and influence is for the NHS to commission it widely. Because what we found, um, uh, and the clinicians who've been running it, first it started at UCL uh, during COVID, and so we, we, we piloted it there. And then it's been ported to, uh, and I sort of use the expression, um, adopt and adapt, because everybody every team as you know are different so every skill set within each hospital team and community team are different so you know you need to be able to not ask for more resources you need to to be able to to give your um, clinicians your therapists the multidisciplinary teams uh, access to more people in a quicker less expensive way and that is using zoom or teams uh, and so it's not a not a fancy program but it's having more than uh, a few, up to 10, 12 people online, like we're talking now, and you've got therapists going through a programmatic approach to rehabilitation. And so it's, you know, it's multiple weeks uh, and you develop relationships. And then the big learning that everybody's had for that is that um, the peer-to-peer groups that emerge, as you all know, uh, you know, you have some therapy and you meet somebody you meet the carer, you meet the family member, and you, you know, you just create your own team to go ahead when the funding stops, because that's the tragedy. The funding is always going to stop at the moment. Yeah, and and it and it brings it back to community as well, doesn't it? Creating that community that can be strengthened through those yeah. peer support networks and shared experiences and yes. Certainly, that's something that I've benefited from, which has been amazing. And some of the friendships that have grown out of that online, but in person as well. And I think that's really been of so much benefit to Hector, myself, but also brought so much joy. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's not just it's, oh, it's it's good for us. It's actually that it's, um, you know, it it really has friendship and deep friendships and and connections that yeah. will last a lifetime definitely and and i think it's 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 these things that you know that when it is so bleak most of the time it's wonderful to have it is and it's people connecting people isn't it when amelia went public did she find people like opening up their stories and did she find her own community or has she found of brain injury survivors as well well, I think so. <laughs> she said to me, and I used to, I used to um, know how to do all these things for big corporations. And she said, when you start the website, whatever you do, just don't let it crash. I said, no, 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 of course it's not going to crash. And of course we did it on a shoestring and of course it did crash because she said, I've told you my story, now you tell me yours. So with the, we were inundated with stories immediately. I mean, it just was, it was extraordinary. And that was also been one of our lessons um, because the communities of people who have, have written to Amelia to say, thank you for helping normalize it, a brain injury for young people in particular. Um, you know, it hasn't stopped and we still have, you know, stories. And so we have something on our website called Portraits. And so we have um, three wonderful volunteers all around the world and they take the, the letters coming in and they have dialogues with the people and, and see if they want to have their story shared because we found that it's a therapy in itself because you, you have to tell people what's happened to you. Yeah. People have to acknowledge what's happened, don't you think? Absolutely. Yes, which is why we have on a good day, Jenny. 
absolutely <laughs> think more than think you're doing something about it so yeah so that's that's it and so i think her community isn't very large um really but i think there are a few actors who have uh, you know uh, uh, working with us uh, for pro projects in the future that we might be able to um, publicize a bit later Sounds exciting. And I think there's so much power in her sharing her story. And she must have felt an amazing therapy as well. And all of you, really, because you had kept it under wraps for so long. But, you know, just talking just helps so much, doesn't it? It really does. Yes. And I think it is really underestimated because it's not measured again, because, you know, if, if things aren't measured, you don't get funding. If things aren't me measured. You know, there's no money to to make it bigger, better or what or change. So I think that um, and, and talking and explaining what happened, um, that would be some it'd be wonderful if uh, if there could be organisations who might be listening to this that could take this on in a meaningful way. Absolutely. And what are your key ways of fundraising at the moment? Um, Julia, I know, is doing her steps in November. Oh, are you? <laughs> well Welcome to Park. <laughs> yes, exactly. I love that. No, we, we and I are doing it together. Oh, that's lovely. That's really mm. kind. Thank you very much. So yes, yeah, so we we do have online campaigns to to raise money. We have uh, one one thing that we're very excited about. We had a really um, exciting our first big event, which was um, our cycle Ibiza this year, and we've uh, decided in twenty twenty five we'll do a bike and hike again in Ibiza and make it much much bigger. Because what we did is the, the the cycle Ibiza. It was a few months. We you know we, we launched it with within a few months, and so now we're launching our new one for 2025, and to give a lot of people time to train. Mm. And we hope that we'll get a team from America, a team from somewhere else, and just you know make it, uh, and and hiking as well. So uh, the people that were wonderful and supported us and raised a lot of money for Senyu. Um, were uh, was all cyclists, but you know their partners, their friends, you know maybe weren't cyclists, but you know we're going to find different routes in the beautiful island of Ibiza, and have, have a lot of fun as well. I was so, going to say that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> Might have to no, sign myself up for that one. No, I think you'd love it. I mean, lots of lovely supporters giving great hospitality for us and things like that. Oh, well done. That sounds amazing. Um, and going back a little bit. So we were talking before we, we recorded about how, um, you know, Amelia's story actually made you get a checkup and helped essentially save your life. Well, so what happened was that um, just before we launched the charity in 2018, um, I woke up one day and I just felt very dizzy and I felt nauseous. And so um, I dialed, you know, whatever I dialed in the NHS and they said, oh, you're having a stroke. You you know, we'll get an ambulance to you. So I said, I'm not having a stroke. I really, you know, I know a little bit about this. I know I'm not having a stroke. But they said, no, 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 you've got to go in. And I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand up. And I was, you know, it was, it was pretty unpleasant. So I was rushed to hospital and they said, no, you're not having a stroke. You've got an ear infection. Great. I thought I thought that's what it might be. Um, but guess what? You've got two aneurysms you've got mirror aneurysms just like Amelia and one was pretty large and had sort of needed coiling preventative coiling to stop it bleeding and hemorrhaging so I had that um and then I've got another one and then all of a sudden oh I've got another one so I've got two that are untreated and one that is treated so I feel you know good about that in a way because you know I, I went through the operation 
uh, understanding what it, you know the, the amazing power of how you can have these interventions in the, you know it, with such incredible skilled um, practitioners. Uh, and now I understand a little bit about coils and the length of them and the shape of them and all that stuff. Um, but I'm glad I didn't know that before I actually had mine done because I think I would have been a little bit more frightened. But it's it's brilliant and and most people you know survive very well um, with a coil. Amazing. So it is, you know, they can't say for sure, but it's likely that there is a hereditary genetic link. Yes, they call it familial. They've called it to us, familial. So it's in the family line. And again, I'm told, this is not a huge evidence, but that it's potentially through the female family line is more common for subarachnoid hemorrhages. Again, um, it's just getting this information out there so actually people can get checked and and be aware of when they're feeling a bit dizzy yeah. or, you know, any of these signs and symptoms that they take it more seriously than... But I think one of the problems with subarachnoid is that there's very little symptoms, very few symptoms beforehand. Um, and so something that's why it's, you know, usually a bolt out of the blue and, and then it's too late because it means that you're actually having your brain hemorrhage um and that's you know that's the catastrophic part of it but yes but i i, th I think well there's a lot of debate really if you if you really um because having an mri is really the only way you can really see the, the different um subarachnoid um problems i mean obviously with different types of brain injury that's not not necessarily true you can see it on other scans but you know if you if you we all we all might be walking around uh, and if you haven't had a brain scan you might not know that you've got something there but if there isn't um it's the it's the difference between being too scared because you might have something wrong with you and then and then going and, and stopping you living your life so i've talked to people who've got um like me untreated aneurysms and they say that they're so frightened that they can't live their life so my approach is, well, you know, it's probably not going to happen because even if you have an aneurysm, it's not necessarily going to bleed. Um, so just get on with it and enjoy every moment um, and not be be fearful because it doesn't achieve anything. And yeah. if an aneurysm is too small to treat or too difficult to treat, then you can't do anything about it. And the probability is that it will be fine. And you do, and you're right. You just have to live your life and live each day in the present and try not to worry you know this is a lesson for all of us isn't it about what could happen or but what so, you know but so difficult I mean it's it's easy to say you know um and easy to say with a smile but um you know it's it's really hard in the dark hours you know thinking so absolutely. I'm, not, I'm not being I'm not being flippant about it no absolutely and that's why we need more help with our mental health as well like it's mm. all it all comes back to you know that holistic approach as as you, you were saying and how and what you're driving to do with same you so thank you so much for coming on jenny very grateful to giving you giving me the opportunity to talk to you and, and explain a little bit about what we do um and so what we do try and do is find seed funding so we look for seed funding in various ways so that we can start off some innovations that people tell us are missing and that we see that are missing in our conversations with clinicians around the world. Um, and then perhaps one really bright light is the uh, this, this year, the WHO have launched their World Rehabilitation Alliance. And so I'm very fortunate to be part of that group, um, worldwide group of people, and part of their advocacy stream, external relations advocacy stream. 
So uh, watch this space. There's going to be there is a huge amount of work that the wonderful WHO has done to try and promote the need for rehabilitation, not just neuro, but rehabilitation across the board worldwide and have put in place frameworks and lots of wonderful tools for um, health departments, ministries, governments around the world to be able to understand the need uh, and to take some action. So hopefully there will be lots more conversations and action. That's really exciting. Really exciting. Thank you. Yes, very exciting, Jenny. And I think one of the things that I feel so passionately about is connecting up all of these wonderful pieces of work, um, teams across the world, people, organisations, new and old, that are all working in this field. And it's such a pleasure to have you on today to hear about Same You um, alongside some of our other guests in previous episodes and, and to just hear of the wonderful work and the change that you're you're making and the, your vision as well. I think you've been so passionate in, in your vision um, for the help that you want to see in place. And you're obviously a driving force in, in getting that happening. So I'm definitely going to watch your space <laughs> and, uh, and yes, please carry on listening to us as well, because no, I will. Um, no, hopefully exactly the same. we can bring some of that into this space too. And we know people access information in so many different ways, don't we? And I think there's room for everyone to try and, really? and be accessible um, to the people that that need it when they need to to hear these messages and conversations. So thank you. It is about building a community, and we all and know nothing without the community around us. Absolutely. And um, for those wanting to uh, look a bit more at Same You, it's sameu.org, isn't it, Jenny? And we'll put everything in the show notes as well. Thank you Super. so much again, Jenny, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a delight. I'm really grateful for you inviting me. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us to grow by subscribing, rating and reviewing the podcast. It would mean so, so much to us. And do check out our previous episodes from season one and do share it with others who will benefit. Tag us with the social media handles at onagood.day on Instagram, Twitter at onagood underscore day. We also have a fabulous Facebook community. So do check us out. It's all in the show notes. Until next time, have a very good day.